Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool, cause you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. Welcome back to Going Overboard, the Leftist Lit Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Orton, and with me is some other people. Who's whose is it? Yar. <laughs> I'm going overboard. Apparently. Well, we're going overboard. Oh, um, I get it. Okay. <laughs> call me Plank. No, uh, Shane Ragland, our editor and great guest. And oh I- yeah, sure. I forgot about that. Yeah, yes. motherfucker. <laughs> and I am your co-host, Allison Gropey, local pirate wench. <laughs> Previously on the Leftist Lit Podcast, hideous ah! torture, the soul, France. <laughs> all right, we're all cut up. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. We last time you were with us, we were discussing part one torture of Michel Foucault's discipline and punish the birth of the prison, mainly the section the body of the condemned, and we finished off basically talking about how the soul is a political construct used to create value judgments on an entire group of people watch the previous episode it's wild not just the soul but also like the way that we decide how courts work and how trials physically function like people all standing around in a courtroom and judges being called justices and blah 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 also speaking of which (sighs) dost thou have news for us colin no motherfucker (laughs) (laughs) no we exhausted the three news articles that i picked last week Eh, so that's pretty much you have a bit of oh then (laughs) so i realized that why should why should i paraphrase andrew yang when i'm sitting at a computer with access to the internet so read me out read him his receipts we're uh and i quote We are never going to get our jobs back and our economy back if we don't get the mentally ill people who are on our streets in a better environment Yes, mentally ill people have rights, but you know who else has rights? We do, the people and families of the city. We have a right to walk down the street and not fear for our safety because a mentally ill person is going to lash out at us. Uh... He started off kind of on the right track, and then like after the first sentence just immediately veered off. There will not be an economic recovery until people feel safe walking our streets and walking our subways. The reason people don't feel safe is because of the virus and the cops. Also, the obscene amount of rats. Yeah, the rats. <laughs> They'll take a small dog. <laughs> and cockroaches. There's other reasons. Oh my yeah, the God. mentally ill people aren't the reason people feel unsafe in New York. Everyone that, like I said before, everyone there has their own problems. Houseless neurodivergent people probably feel more unsafe than, quote-unquote, the rest of us. there's always a cop looking at them. Yeah. It's illegal for them to sit down in public based on certain vagrancy laws. Don't you love all the new laws that keep getting added that basically make it illegal to just hang out? Yeah. Or even just at rest, like most restaurants don't allow loitering anymore? Mm-hmm. Or use the restrooms. Yeah, which makes me as a delivery driver very unhappy because I need somewhere to pee. Yeah. Um, My car does not have a bathroom in it. Yes. So uh, have you guys heard of the ugly laws? Hit me. Yes. 
between 1867 and 1974, and I'm just reading off of Wikipedia here, various cities of the United States had unsightly beggar ordinances, in retrospect also dubbed ugly laws. For example, San Francisco had a law of 1867 that deemed it illegal for, quote, any person who is diseased, maimed, mutilated, or deformed in any way so as to be unsightly or disgusting uh so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object to expose himself or herself to the public view. That's not only, that's so ableist. It was illegal to go outside in many U.S. cities if you were considered uh, (laughs) unsightly or disgusting. Also, if I have if The philosophical aesthetic implications of that statement make no sense. Like, Give yourself Who a bad decides? haircut. You can't go outside. <laughs> if I dress a little bit slumpy one day, smell a bit, maybe I have like a bandaid on my face. By the cops, it's yeah. over for you. It's uh, over, cocksuckers. You wear a Halloween costume a bit too early. Oh, <laughs> super jumped. Basically, this country has a long history of laughing of at at people's. Like we have the obvious one, slavery. You know where we were like, what fucking rights? But then we also have a long history of other slightly more creative ways where we marginalize people. And the ugly laws are one of the more insane ones. <laughs> it's just that it's so blunt. Like you expect... Some nuance. The, yeah, some nuance or some like way to make it a bit like easier to digest or a bit slip more slippery so that it's not just as... Just like a, a hammer to the face of... Oh, you ugly? No. You don't get no to live. No uggos, but make it law. <laughs> no uggos. Some chuds attacked anti-fascists in Oregon City, and then the Oregon City Police Department got involved to attack the anti-fascists. That happens, like, every fucking week. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is it really news anymore? <laughs> no, but, like, if you really want to look, like, one of the, uh, a, a journalist out of Portland got punched in the head by yeah, a chud whose name immediately got leaked. <laughs> he got fucking doxxed immediately, which, uh, good. Um, so yeah, that was a whole thing. Tasty. Horrible. Um, As all news in Oregon is. Tasty and terrible. A, a lot of mace. T-N-T. Just a lot of mace. Um, spicy air. Speaking of which, spicy air, more specifically, the power of the state. Um, <laughs> These transitions are on point. This they're session. very bad. Are they? No. no this is on point um, hang on. I need to figure out how the Kindle works because I have highlighted sections, but I don't know how to access them. Well, while you're doing that, I prevent a little bit of a transition into the spectacle of the scaffold. If you're down with that, please. Sure. Please. So last week we basically talked about <laughs> Shane is weeping. Uh, we basically talked about public executions versus private prisons, the way that that reflects the changing of the political system in which the justice, that justice is being applied, and the way in which having that sort of private justicism, justice system, I can't speak, creates <laughs> a right of the state not only to judge the actions of its citizens, but their very souls, and therefore making these souls sort of a construct of the state because of the relationship between truth and power. I want to touch briefly before we get into 
the next section, Spectacle of the Scaffold, wherein Foucault goes back to discuss more the implications of what public executions and public humiliation meant about the justice system. I just want to end with a little bit on that soul and that genealogy, because when Foucault talks about genealogies, and he does this throughout all of his work, he's not speaking about, you know, a scientific genealogy. He uses the, like, in the sense of, you know, biology. He uses it to discuss more of, like, a non-linear history. He hates the word history. He, it's the no, way in which multiple factors combine to both affect one another and create one another. So there's, he speaks of a genealogy between truth and power in that ooh, the microphysics of punitive power are an element in the genealogy of the modern soul. We have this conception of the soul based on the people that were in power and the ideals they espoused. And then one quote, and then Colin, I'll let you speak. This, this is the historical reality of the soul, which, unlike the soul represented by Christian theology, is not born in sin and subject to punishment, but is born rather out of methods of punishment, supervision, and constraint. Instead of the body being a prison of the soul, the soul is the prison of the body. We finally got Thank Foucault you. talking about prisons and prisons. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I was trying to, like, I was trying to get at that about three minutes ago, but I have a, a bad case of uh, what is known as um, being dumb as shit. And so I can't, like, I could not find a way to pierce that subject. One of the things that I found really fascinating is again, I got into this huge argument with uh, one of my D&D groups about um, whether or not in a Dungeons and Dragons game you need to address the legitimizing uh, mechanisms of a government. So, for example, in a feudal society, the legitimizing mechanism of the government is the divine right of kings, uh, is uh, basically the, the, uh, the Faustian bargain uh, struck with the church where um, the, you know, <laughs> the the king rules because God said his family is better than yours. Um, I like how people bought that. <laughs> <laughs> I like they bought it because like, sounds about right. <laughs> power and truth, my dude. They are so fucking intertwined. Well, and essentially, it is the modern legitimizing tactic is to tie authority not just physical or martial not just the the monopoly of violence to the state but also to ascribe moral authority to the state uh the ability not just to you know not the state not just being the force that has the monopoly of, of violence on the region but the state that decides through their through their justice system who is a correct citizen, which citizens are worthy, which are not, what is true and what is not. Like it is, it is sort of a, I think it's um, uh, from my smooth brained perspective, this seems like an advent of the last 300 or rather 200 and change years of history. As we sort of get the concept of the modern nation state as not just a, a physical force, but a spiritual one. Mm -hmm. um, we get Napoleon's civic nationalism and then the uh, extra charming German ethnic nationalism that rose as essentially uh, a frantic attempt to bind the people together so that they could ascribe their government with the authority to say what is right and who is a good citizen. And who qualifies to be a citizen in the first place. 
who qualifies to be human. Mm-hmm. And as we'll discuss in this second bit, the spectacle of the scaffold, like just the juxtaposition of someone committing a crime against their fellow citizen to be someone committing a crime against not only the state, but God, but morality itself. But as Foucault calls it, the superior man, the idea of man. Bro, I just needed some bread. Why are you making this so a big I deal? Know. I stole a loaf of bread. Um, <laughs> it, well, this is also the period in the last like 250 years where we see the hobbling of the church mm-hmm. as a means of legitimization. Like mm-hmm. globally, most societies were non-secular at, uh, at the beginning of like the 18th century. And again, this is, this is me generalizing the absolute shit out of history, which is not something that anybody should actually do if they're like a serious person. But mm-hmm. as I am not a serious person, I will do this. Um, but like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of governments are operating with at least some legitimacy granted by the church. And as we begin to see, A, the enlightenment, this social movement, but we also begin to see, um, like we see with Louis XIV, uh, actively undermining the church's power by sponsoring anti-church artists um, and consolidating power underneath himself and sort of breaking feudalism for this more industrialized, uh, not just military force, but... uh, operating system, this more modern bureaucracy rather than a decentralized feudal state, we see concentrated, um, more vertical states with more modern, like organizational charts, if you will, which do not need the sort of cultural legitimacy that the faith provides. Mm -hmm. And amen. And it's funny you mention religious legitimacy in France, because when we get into the second part of the chapter, the spectacle of the scaffold, one of the things they mention is that not only do these methods of torture, and they go into the methods of torture Ooh boy. very specifically, that not only do they follow like the principles of the society, they often follow Christian values and are highly religious-sized? Is there a word that means made religious? Uh, I know there is. It's on the top of my tongue. My brain is very smooth, and my face is a circle, so I don't know if I would ever know the word, you know? I feel like taller note would be the one to know. Square head, what do you think? Um, He's a rectangle. I mean, if you made made it God, you could deify it, but I don't know. Sanctified. 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 Oh, God, I'm so smart. Um. (laughs) But (laughs) it was very calculated, the moves that they made based on the values ascribed to their society and the values of the church. Like, it all had to be religious, and that was one of the only justifications they could make for Oh, it's so interesting, the justifications they make for the torture. Um, I have... Okay, we can do it because we put God on the name. They also put God in the expectations. I'll get into it. Um, I split this chapter, this part of the chapter, into three bits that I titled Torture as a Means of Discovering Truth, The Social Manifestations of Torture, and Why the Shift from Public to Private. Um, when we talk about the social manifestations of torture, we'll really get into like the expectations of the people about how God was related to the executions. But before that, let's talk a little bit about, about the hypocrisy of using torture both as an investigative method and as a punishment. 
So um, essentially one of the big things about making one of the big like caveats of making the government the arbiter of what is true is that they have to make it true. And Mm -hmm. so uh, one of the jobs of a justice of the law was to extract confessions out of people by force if necessary, because the big performance of justice often involved the accused admitting their guilt and begging for forgiveness. Now, unfortunately for a lot of justices, if you could withstand the torture, they had to let you go in a lot of cases (laughs) in the 1700s. Yeah, because you were basically proving you were innocent. Well, and criminally speaking, you know, it's the 1700s. Like, it is somebody else's word against yours, and if there are no witnesses... There's not a lot they can fucking do. Right. (laughs) They mentioned that the legal system at the time before they switched to private prisons was a sort of arithmetic where they had, and you, I've done a little bit of legal ethics research in a couple of college classes and the term legal proofs becomes a lot more modern and relevant. But back in the day they had, in this situation, they had full proofs, semi proofs, and then what did they call them? Adminicule. I, I can't pronounce French words. A miracle. A miracle. A miracle. <laughs> America. Uh, Adminicule, <laughs> which were loosely defined as distant yeah. clues, basically like circumstantial evidence. Nice face, Shane. He's doing that classic. They're turking our gerbs face. <laughs> but they literally had to arith- arithmetically. They had to mathematically. And yes. Thank you. They had to add together these proofs to make a full case, but without that confession, they argued that even two full proofs perhaps could not make a full case. And in this case, a full proof means two witnesses having seen the man leave the location with a bloody sword and a dead body later being found there. God, it was so easy to commit crimes in the past. <laughs> I know, right? Like... There's that whole Bon Mulganey skit about it, or uh, bit that he does in a stand-up where, like, you know... About kidnapping? A hundred years ago, all you had to do to get away with murder was not be there when the cops showed up. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. speaking of cops, um, Lord. Uh, we will uh, get into the role that the show of force plays, but there's, there's a lot of cops in this chapter, and I was thinking to myself on my sachet home from the train stop... Uh, I was thinking to myself, you know, what role police play in the modern performance of state power when we have taken our executions and our sort of public cruelties to demonstrate the power of the state and we've hidden them behind the walls of prisons and instead we have heavily armed agents of the state every four blocks. Mm-hmm. Just as a reminder. Just as a, a little reminder, I was I was reminded of the Brendan Lee Mulligan quote, the occupying army. Um, the other day I was walking home from the laundromat and I, uh, who knows what was happening. I never found out what was happening in my neighborhood, but no fewer than seven NYPD vans and two cruisers, two cops per cruiser and five in per van were moving in a huge convoy down my street. Um, and like people were out on their steps, like, waiting to see what nightmare was going to befall them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the convoy just kept driving. Mm-hmm. I see so many fucking cops hanging around the nearby Dairy Queen near my house, and I don't know why. Is the new cops like donuts? The cops like Dairy Queen? No, because they weren't like 
eating it. They're like <laughs> just walks away. They're just lurking near the Dairy Queen. What happens at that Dairy Queen? I don't know. It's a front. It's a front for money. Well, I don't know why. It's because it's a very low income street. So yeah, they're just uh, lurking. They're waiting. They're just waiting for something to happen because a lot of homeless people mm-hmm. live there too, or live around there. The first protest that I attended in 2020, which was with Dylan, our beloved hey. friend of the pod. Because, um, Colin, I think you were out of the state at that time. Yeah, probably. Um, before the protest even started, like when we got off of the subway at Times Square, we clocked no fewer than eight police paddy wagons, like vans to pick up people before the protest even started. Just waiting there. Just, you know what's going to happen. <sighs> and that was when there was a uh, curfew too so <laughs> mm. but we'll talk a bit more about that mm, visible militarization of government power when we get into like why people started why they stopped doing executions because i think that's heavily related but when we're still talking about the arithmetic of torture and the arithmetic of legal proofs uh they really measured the torture in specific degrees when it was used for an investigative purpose, including the weight of the ropes to the number of times you could torture a person before mm-hmm. you were done. I have a quote here. The first degree of torture was the sight of the instruments. In the cases of children and persons over the age of 70, one did not go beyond this stage. But as we mentioned previously, if the accused held out, quotes, Against all degrees of torture, he essentially won unless the magistrate was given permission to impose judicial torture pending proof, which meant even then, if the person survived all this torture, they could still prosecute the case. <sighs> oh, poor Shane. So, dep- so infuriating and depressing. I know. You know what's even more I'm just so tired now. <laughs> oh, welcome. Welcome to the tiring podcast that makes you tired and sad. And then we get into the social manifestations of torture, which really interested me, particularly how if you were found guilty, they justified the torture that they did to you by, oh, you were guilty, so you deserved it. But if you were found innocent, you were supposed to think of your signs of torture as a sort of mark of exculpation. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a double, it was hypocritical. I have here mm-hmm. a uh, enormously long-winded Actually, quote. Real quick, could you, expl- could you define exculpation? Uh, I had to Google it, too. I had that, it was from a quote. Um, so that listeners can be like, okay, but what does that me- word mean? Just basically, like... A sign of your innocence, right? Yeah, or a, like... A finding of your innocence? Being free of guilt, being proven, like, you know innocent i can't say the same thing <laughs> i don't know fucking synonyms what do i look like a genius <laughs> Cin- cinnamons i love cinnamons there were even some cases of an almost theatrical reproduction of the crime in the execution of the guilty man with the same instruments the same gestures thus justice had the crime reenacted before the eyes of all publishing it uh publishing it in its truth and at the same time annulling it in the death of the guilty man even as late as the 18th century as uh, 1772 one finds sentences like the following a servant girl at cabray having killed her mistress was condemned to be trigger warning taken to the place of her execution in a 
cart used to collect rubbish at the crossroads. There, a uh, oh, so the cart was a garbage cart. Uh, there, a gibbet was to be set up, the foot of which would be placed at the same chair at in which the said Lelieu, her mistress, was sitting at the time of the murder. And having seated the criminal there, the executioner of the High Court of Justice will cut off her right hand, throw it in her presence into the fire, and immediately afterwards will strike her four blows with the cleaver with which she murdered the said Lelieu, uh, the first and second being on the head, the third on the left forearm, and the fourth on the chest. This done, she will be hung and strangled on the said gibbet until she be dead, uh, and when two hours have elapsed, her dead body will be removed, and the head separated from it at the foot of the said gibbet and, uh, and on the said scaffold with the same cleaver she used to murder her mistress. The same head ex- uh, exhibited on a pole 20 feet high but outside of the gates of uh, said Cabret within reach of the roads that lead to Dois and the rest of the body put in a sack and buried near the pole at a depth of 10 feet. Jesus, somehow Hammurabi's code is more kind than this. Right? <laughs> right? Somehow an eye for an eye seems like and not pristine a, a compared to this stroke for stroke reenactment of the murder that you committed and worse and then also worse like if you survive that then they just strangle you also there's this fascination with the removal and burning of the hand used to commit the crime which i think is really interesting it's especially funny considering how many people like cutting off the hand of thebes is always used by western civilizations as like quote-unquote Western civilizations. Uh, We know that the East-West dichotomy is highly flawed, but it's always used by fucking dumb American people to be like, oh, those Eastern nations, they're so barbaric, when Europe did so much worse. The the Europe. Uh, The Europe. You're you're not wrong, though. Like, this... It's... But it's okay when we do it. (laughs) No, it's not. This was, you know, after the Enlightenment, too. This is when we were, uh, America was about to be born. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we're four years from America, brother, when this happened. And in this spectacle of violence, this veritable orgy of just horrific acts, complete, completely done for the sake, not of the criminal, but of the audience watching, really proves that this is not just a social or judicial ritual, but entirely political. As we've mentioned before, by offending the law, the person violates not only the offended, but the right of the superior man. Quote, the crime attacks the sovereign. It attacks him personally, since the law represents the will of the sovereign. It attacks him physically, since the force of law is the force of the prince. Um, so there is a, fuck, there is a reference earlier in the, uh, in the reading about how a sovereign or a king has two bodies, the physical flesh and blood body that he, uh, ambles around in and the metaphorical body, which is the, the boundaries of the state in which he control, like the state that he controls. Um, like, you know, the king of France is very literally France. <laughs> The Sun um, King. And so there is, you know, any transgression of the king's law becomes an attack on the king's sovereignty and therefore the control over his own body, i.e. France. I feel like he's taking this way too personally, man. <laughs> right? It's, it is one of those concepts that you examine it for three seconds, you go, oh, this is the most bonkers shit I've <laughs> ever seen in my life. <laughs> Who thought <Like>, of this? <laughs> What f- this is how laws worked and work. Um, mm-hmm. Like, and I quote, 
uh, the, the public execution is to be understood not only as a judicial, but also as a political ritual. It belongs, even in minor cases, to the ceremonies by which power is manifested. Later on the same page. Uh, if one commits something that the law forbids, even if there is neither harm nor injury to the individual, it is an offense that demands reparation because the right of the superior man, Al, is violated and it because and because it offends the dignity of his character. Besides its immediate victim, the crime also attacks the sovereign. Um, it harms him personally because it, uh, it attacks his will and physically, as you said, Al, um, Quote, for a law to be in force in this kingdom, it must necessarily have emanated directly from the sovereign or at least been confirmed by the seal of his authority. Mm-hmm. Which, what the fuck? But also, <laughs> yeah, whose idea was this? <laughs> hear me out. Why do you think it is that police lash out with such insane force against protesters who challenge their authority? Not, not right-wing protesters who are basically on the same side as them, no, no, but against protesters who challenge the authority of the police, who just maybe would be like, hey, why, how about you just don't kill people, even just as much? Why do you kill people so much? Because they're offending the state. Well, because in, in our society, um, the police... We live in a society. The police same. are essentially the lowest rung of the sovereign. The mm-hmm. sovereign is decentralized in a lot of ways and highly centralized in others. Our president is our sovereign, but so are the lobbyists and the billionaires who control Congress and Congress in some ways, but not in others. But ultimately, the repressive apparatus of the state, as uh, Joseph Vitale says, mm-hmm. um, is the lowest like physical rung of the abstracted sovereign under which we live. And any attack on the legitimacy of said sovereign, which again, any at- any crime is an attack on the legitimacy of the sovereign because this makes the- crime sound a lot cooler now. Because the only legitimacy that the sovereign has is the monopoly on violence. Mm-hmm. So any crime and anything that delegitimizes the sovereign in the game of legitimacy, which is, you know, the game of, uh, to quote, uh, certain W. Bush, uh, hearts and minds. Um, you know, in order to challenge the sovereign in the game of hearts and minds, it also delegitimizes them. And uh, they react in the same way they would if you attacked them with, say, a half-empty plastic water bottle. No way. But uh, that reminds me of something I believe uh, Innuendo Studio said relating to, again, like the, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, which was when especially cops and police have already shown willingness and not only just the ability to, the willingness to and are currently doing uh, to harm or kill people in the street. Violence was already on the board. It was already happening. And asking people to protest completely peacefully or like doing like the Gandhi or MLK thing is just, and saying that it's not okay for them to commit violence is really just showing it not that you don't like violence, but that you have a preference for who the violence happens to and that you're looking for a performance in protest that you're expecting protesters to literally just stand there and get beaten one of the to a pulp because the state still has the legitimacy of the monopoly of violence in your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I have another quote. Uh, I'm so sorry. Um, But uh, do it. 
fucking feed me these tasty quotes, Colin. The right to punish, therefore, is an aspect of the sovereign's right to make war on his enemies. To punish belongs to, quote, the, that absolute power of life and death, which Roman law calls merum imperium, a right by virtue of which the prince sees that his law is respected by ordering the punishment of crime. Um, and there's quite a lot of talk uh, about, uh, I, I have here, I'm so sorry, but this is a really long quote from page 49, I believe. Uh, this here we is, go. This is uh, describing the procession around a person who is to be executed, and they are moving the prisoner from the prison to the block. Oh, I'm so glad you described this because I have something to go off of too. Go ahead. The officers will ride according to the following order, namely, at the head, two police sergeants, then the patient. After the patient, Bonfort and Lecour on his left will walk together, followed by the clerk of the court, and in this manner shall go to the market square, at which place the judgment shall be carried out. Now, this meticulous ceremonial was not only legal, but quite explicitly military. The justice of the king was shown to be an armed justice. The sword that punished the guilty was also the sword that destroyed enemies. The, a whole military machine surrounded the scaffold. Cavalry of the watch, archers, guardsmen, soldiers. This was intended, of course, to prevent any escape or show of force. It was also to prevent any outburst of sympathy or anger on the part of the people, any attempt to save the condemned or to have them immediately put to death. But it was also a reminder that every crime constituted, as it were, a rebellion against the law and that the criminal was an enemy of the prince. Good. Mm -hmm. I would like to be the enemy of the prince. Enemy, enemy, enemy of the princey. The prince is both one guy slowly losing his mind because he's inbred, and the <laughs> prince is every single one of those soldiers. Mm -hmm. And these these processions that you were describing, they didn't just include this heavily armed militia guiding it the entire they way. They included clerks and lawyers. Mm -hmm. But it was also, they had them repeat the confession multiple times, which they described as, well, Foucault describes as publishing the truth of the crime in the very body of the man to be executed. They pinned the public torture onto the crime itself, as you described earlier, establishing a relationship, even establishing theatrics related to it. Further fucking emphasizing, hey, you kill your mistress, we're going to kill you the exact same way and worse. But like you were saying, people, there was a worry of people's retaliation. And so, uh, I had to catch a death note. And so they had this also theological implication put on it, which eventually backfired against them because in this procession, it was, they were made to believe that the accused's cries and sufferings also served as proof of their crime. Like the things they would say as they were being tortured and implied can and will be used against you in a court of law, even after you've been tried. Um, and they implied that the sufferings of these tortures on earth, quote, with resignation would therefore alleviate their punishment in the afterlife. But having that as a component would allow spectators to make their own determinations of the person's guilt or innocence based, based entirely on how long it would take them to die or how painfully. There's descriptions in the book of the audience deciding that someone had been innocent because they died so quickly, because surely God must have wanted their pain to end. Or the other way, if they didn't die at all, as we said in the first episode, there was this tradition of, well, if they didn't die during their execution, God must not have wanted them to die. So we should let them go. 
you ever feel like the afterlife is just used across the board as kind of an excuse for yep. either the state or people just do heinous shit? Yep. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this religious implication they put on it would eventually backfire against them because once, as they mentioned later into what I call the third section, why they shift from public to private when we start seeing more of these peasant revolts. Also by private, you mean uh, like hidden yes. instead of privately owned? Because yeah, in the United States, private prison means a, a nightmarish concept. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, we don't have that yet in France. I mean, now we do, but not in these 1800s. But yes, I do mean more from public to hidden because one of the reasons people were worried when people would attend these executions was because if the crowd, okay, on one hand, they were cheering for this man to die. They were accepting it. It was an entertainment, but it was also the only place that political dissidents couldn't be punished. Because if the person on the scaffold, you know, already tried, already dying as they watched, was shouting things against the... Okay, here we go. I have a quote. If the crowd gathered around the scaffold, it was not simply to witness the sufferings of the condemned man or to excite the anger of the executioner. It was also to hear an individual who had nothing more to lose, curse the judges, the laws, the government, and the religion. The public execution allowed the luxury of this momentary Saturnalia, where nothing remained to prohibit or punish. And oftentimes, they would applaud the man's statements. These heretical or anti-authoritarian statements would receive resounding applause. Um, There was also something to be said for shock on behalf of the audience in the brutality of the executioners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quote uh, a name a name that I will fuck up, but uh, Damuder complained as uh, uh, Damuder complained with many of his contemporaries that the executioners exercised quote every cruelty with regard to the evil doing patients, treating them, buffeting them, and killing them as if they had a beast in their hands. Which no parallels. Um, mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no, 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 no parallels to anything never, that has happened. No, 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 um, no never. <laughs> and w- what we're seeing in the U.S. is our own special form of public execution, where we have an occupying army. We have our own mini princes in miniature in the streets who get to do public executions. They're just supposed to be private. Mm-hmm. Um. And because uh, of technology and the carelessness of our police, um, these, these executions are now public. Mm-hmm. Whoopsie-daisy. And we get to see the brutality of the executioners. They're not only bad at their jobs because they murder people, they're also bad at murdering at people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not good. <laughs> In the information age, truth and power, baby. Hey, or, as, and especially truth in the information age knowledge like he goes into earlier i think near the end of chapter one or the beginning of chapter two uh knowledge and power are the same thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i think with the information age as we are currently sitting in power isn't necessarily more distributed into the hands of the layman but knowledge is if you know where to look for it Mm -hmm. or if you have the resources to look for it we've talked repeatedly on this podcast about how not everyone has the resources to obtain what is sometimes perceived as common knowledge, but that, oh, my dog is walking. Uh, But that is partially because of power, because of who does and who doesn't have power and who has the power to question the authority. And who has the power to distribute or hide knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But what we see with our modern day public executions is a lot of what they were worried about in these executions that were more, you know, codified and visibly public, more performatively public. If the executioner was committing what they thought to be an excessive amount of pain, or if the crowd thought that the cr- punishment didn't justify the crime or that the person was innocent, there were riots. There were people rescued from the scaffold. God, remember when we used to be able to do that? God, remember when people rioted at the drop of a hat? Right? We should, be- more. we should be able to more with social media and everything. It should be more accessible. Than Normalize that. rioting. If they can do it as football games, we can do it for rights. Um, now, come on. Of course, rights yeah. are way more dangerous to the, the social order the than football games. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're, like Football riots are allowed to happen because they're not going to cause, they're not aiming to, or they're not going to cause any actual harm other than just property damage, which in, for football riots, you know, property damage, eh, it's fine, it's whatever. But if you're, say, protesting for civil rights or against police brutality, any minor bit of... My goddamn small business. (laughs) Someone spray-painted F the police on this random public building. (laughs) (laughs) Will someone please think of the Starbucks? Will someone please think of Wells Fargo? (laughs) Um, Also, uh, one of of my big takeaways from manufacturing consent is, uh, remember those, remember the the, the dual confession? Uh, Making the accused read out his confession twice? Mm-hmm. We've privatized the reading and distributing of said confession, uh, as well as the editorializing and writing of said confession. So now we pay people to pass out pamphlets that say, here's what the accused said, kind of. <laughs> here's what we say the accused said. Here's what we say the accused said. And most of the time, there's kernels of the truth in there, but sometimes there's not. And who knows when and it's why. A, and it's amazing because not only confirmation bias, but like first impression bias, you know, you give them, since obviously the accused is not usually the first to, allowed to speak for himself. Um, if you can get out inf- the information that, that you want to get out first, you control the narrative. Mm-hmm. And you have the power in the situation. You can't ghostwrite a confession. That removes the purpose of a confession. Well, I mean... They did it pretty good with, uh, let's see, there was that guy who was held for 14 months by the Italian uh, secret police. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, There were um, all of those people who were killed by plainclothes soldiers who had their confessions ghostwritten when those, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, the... uh, concealed leftist snipers had their confession ghostwritten by the army. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a it's amazing how laws and what is legal and illegal does not apply to those who quote unquote like enact the law or princes in miniature. Mhm, princes in miniature. The law does not apply to cops just like it does not apply to soldiers or anything else because I would say that laws apply to soldiers way more than they apply to cops. Oh yeah, okay, that's true. <laughs> In like because soldiers have fucking rules of engagement. Like, yeah, but like FBI, CIA like oh, they can get away with anything. Like oh yeah, we faked this person's uh confession, didn't matter. We wanted to to put him somewhere where he couldn't get out and that's all and that matters. Oh no, we committed heinous war crimes at, at black sites all over the Middle East. No, well, whoops, whoops, too bad. <laughs> Nothing you can do about it. 
I cry every time. Because there is literally nothing you can do about it. Not only is it already done, we, the CIA and stuff cannot be punished for it. Mm-hmm. No, Just like how it's a really hard to punish a cop for killing someone because... Technically, he's he was doing his job. Well, the uh, the first member of the Portland Police Bureau in history is uh, facing trial for brutality uh, this week, or not this week, but he's he's facing trial for brutality because he uh, bashed a fucking journalist in the head no. with his uh, with his um, club. Oh, no, with a stick. Click. Okay. Uh, with his uh, with his club uh, last year. Um, and he was a member of the riot squad and the entire riot squad resigned from the riot squad in solidarity with him I in Portland. So it's a weird way of showing solidarity, but okay. No, fucking right. <laughs> oh my God. I'd rather be. So yeah, Portland doesn't have a riot squad right now. Good. Good. <laughs> it's just a strange reason why it doesn't have a riot squad. You know, what's really funny. New That's York's funny. riot squad is all bike cops. That's not true, but they're, they're like protest response squad. The SRG or the special response group are just uh, like a bunch of the most aggro men in cargo shorts I've ever seen in my life. Like, and I've been to Venice Beach. <laughs> oh, no. It's just yellow reflective vests, cargo shorts, and a lot of bikes. Oh, Lord. They're the worst. Um, but yeah. Hey, I, I, got, I have to deal with Portland cops. so I That's true. I get That's the word. No, you do. You do. Uh, the NYPD, at least, are um, image conscious enough to not be uh, the unhinged yeah, hogs that we see at the Portland Police Bureau. Uh, yeah, the NYPD still needs like a bit of public support or at least private support um, because they sponge up a lot of fucking money. Six billion dollars. PBB and PPA can just literally do whatever they want, and it doesn't matter because they run the fucking city. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Little miniature princes, motherfuckers. But yeah, this is that's basically the chapter. Is they end on the note of people got more, not to use a horrible word, uppity. Uh, people started refusing to watch excessive torture. There's one instance they mention where a maid who was unsuccessfully attempted to kill her mistress. By the way, she tried was, to stab her with a needle, right? No, that was after. Oh, um, rip. This woman attempted murdered her mistress, and everyone was so pissed off that they rioted, and then she was let go, but another woman who tried to stab that mistress with a needle was exiled for three years. <laughs> and in one case where the opposite was true... I love a good um, exile. We don't do enough exiles anymore. Exile's <laughs> great. But uh, there was a lord that murdered a priest and they let him off on insanity charges. So the local parishioners who loved their priest took matters into their own hands and stormed the man's home. But yeah, the chapter basically ends with this is why we had to transition. They had to transition into hidden punishment was because public punishment wasn't working as well anymore. And obviously, as we said earlier, this was not a linear tradition a linear path to hidden stuff during the largest riots and the largest uh, uprisings from the early 70 1700s to the mid 1800s they did temporarily reinstitute some of these things to try and reinforce that hammer of law but uh, it wasn't working i wonder why <laughs> i wonder and an iron week- fist is only good for so long <laughs> right 
And next week, we'll find out exactly how this new form of punishment in part two, punishment, reflects the ideology of the state. Woo! And really quick before we plug things, I have a trip to the Scamalier. If you want a good comparative reading for this, Franz Kafka's The Trial. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little comparative literature study. Try it out. You have been Al Gropey. I have, in fact. And you have been Colin Orton, correct? Shane has been getting informed. Oh, no. <laughs> send oh, us hate shit. mail at gettinginformedpod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at leftislippod you can find Shane at I underscore free willy and you can find and then I free willy on Instagram buy his art yay thank you do it um, you can find good. Colin Orton on Instagram at the 13 colonies and on Twitter at Colin Orton and you can find me on Instagram at al.grose and on my website at alison.grose and goddamn thank you so much for listening Woo!